Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Arsenal Beat, a podcast which brings together the journalists and reporters who cover Arsenal on a regular basis. On the Arsenal Beat today is myself, Molly Hudson from The Times, The Guardian's women's sports writer, Susie Rack, and Tim Stillman of Arsblog. As in previous shows, all our newcomers will now quickly introduce themselves by telling us what their role entails and how long they've been covering Arsenal and women's football in general. Susie? Hi Molly, hi guys. Um, Yeah, so I've been covering Arsenal uh, for as long as I can remember as a a fan. Um, I actually used to go and watch Arsenal ladies train in the park opposite uh, my council estate when I was a kid. Um, The team themselves leafleted the the council estate and um, told us that they were training there and would be playing a match there and we, me and my dad used to trot across the road and watch them so I followed Arsenal from when I was little. Um, I've covered women's football for the Guardian for the past like t- about two and a half three years um, and women's football a little bit longer than that for various independent outlets and then um, now cover women's football full-time obviously with a sneaky keen interest on the club I support. And Tim? Yeah, sure. Hi, my name's Tim Stillman and uh, I'm a freelance football journalist, but amongst other things, um, I write about Arsenal women for Arsblog News. So I'm the Arsenal women correspondent for Arsblog News. As to how I, uh, my kind of story with Arsenal women um, probably goes back about 25 years or so when I first started going to watch them um, when I was a kid. This was purely and simply, I've been an Arsenal season ticket holder for the men's team since I was eight. And basically when I was a kid, going to watch Arsenal on a Saturday wasn't enough and my mum kind of said well the Arsenal ladies play on a Sunday so I said yep I'll have some of that as well (laughs) so um, I've been going to watch them for about 25 years or so Um, I've been kind of I started blogging and writing and fanzine writing in about 2006 and pretty much instantly kind of started writing about um, Arsenal ladies as they were then at that point 2011, I joined Arsblog, uh, principally as a columnist about the men's team, which is a position I still hold. Um, But I, again, quite quickly started to write about um, the Arsenal women's team. Uh, We launched Arsblog News, uh, a separate site to the main site in June 2011. So I kind of started writing about them then, although it was um, probably about once a month at that stage. And then at the beginning of 2018, Arsblog went part Patreon. Um, and that just meant uh, Andrew, the editor, had a bit more money to pay me to write a bit more about Arsenal women. So since the end of the 2017-18 season, we've covered every single game, basically. So I go to every game, more or less, home and away, interview players, do feature interviews. We have a monthly podcast about the women's team. Um, we've just completely expanded the coverage, and it's one of the thir- first things we did with the Patreon money. So. Yeah, I've been watching them for 25 years, writing about them for about 13, but really kind of as a correspondent for about uh, coming up three years now. Obviously, I know the two of you pretty well from um, covering Arsenal women um, fairly regularly now, I suppose. Um, I'm a little bit of a baby of the group, I guess. Started watching um, women's football at the 2015 World Cup. Really fell in love with it. Um, and obviously the, the heartbreak of being an England fan um, that continues. Uh, so kind of watched that at college, then went into journalism and was really lucky to get a position at the Times. 
part-time while I was at university studying. Um, then off the back of that, did the 2019 World Cup and have been full-time at the Times ever since. Um, occasionally pop up in Arsenal men's football too. Um, did a little bit of their Europa League campaigns in recent seasons, but mainly women's football and naturally with covering women's football at a newspaper at the moment, that entails the bigger clubs. So most of the time we have spent at Arsenal, it seems this season, actually, there's been so many big games. So um, yeah, I would say we're all, all pretty regular at Boreswood. So we've seen in, in recent weeks, um, the, the kind of impacts of coronavirus on the women's game in general, and probably this week, quite specifically on Arsenal women. Um, so let's just start off with um, how, how the latest lockdown will, will impact the women's game, Susie. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to say exactly what the impact will be at the top of the game. Obviously, we're seeing a massive increase in cases of uh, players contracting COVID, not least, as I think we're going to go on to later, um, through their own stupidity, more than like just coming into contact with um, the disease in day-to-day and at the club and stuff. So that's obviously going to be a problem. We saw the big rise just before Christmas of, you know, there was about, what, 30, 40 cases um, in in one week, which was more than there were in the entire season before that. Um, so I think we're going to see more postponements and stuff. And then obviously you've got the impact lower down the game where um, now the FA Cup games are, you know, p- postponed indefinitely for the moment and potentially going to be decided by a coin toss and all of the kind of weird nuances that the FA like to come up with when they're when they're trying to dig themselves out of a hole um so I mean at the moment the top of the game is looking at disruption um and the bottom of the game is looking at you know pretty traumatic uh um nuances of what cancellation would mean particularly for clubs like Ipswich Town that have run away with the league now for the second season in a row and potentially could have you know again not go up if they find their league cancelled so um yeah pretty pretty grim at the bottom less grim at the top but uh yeah for me the the uh the biggest issue is where the extra time for these games will come from the more they stack up and I guess we should give some background for listeners that maybe aren't too familiar with the women's game. So essentially, the government and the FA have classified 23 teams as elite, which is the two top tiers. So the Women's Super League, where Arsenal play, and then the Women's Championship, which is a predominantly part-time league. Um, so most, most players in, in that division will, will have jobs um, as well as playing football. And then everything below that, Uh, from tier three downwards has been classed as non-elite which means in tier four or in lockdown they are unable to train and unable to play. Um, So the kind of background to that is that the Women's Super League and the Championship are kind of seen as the privileged few. A lot of players lower down the league would obviously love to to be able to be regularly tested and and have the opportunity to play for, for you know various reasons competitive as as Susie mentions but also you know mental health reasons and just just being able to play football so Tim if you could tell us a little bit about 
the background of, of what has happened this week with, or maybe over the winter break with, with players uh, leaving the country? Yeah, sure. And and this is, I think, another thing we should point out, perhaps for people who aren't as familiar with women's football, is that one COVID case probably has more of a ripple effect in women's football than it does in men's football because of cohabitation between players. It's, um, it's very, very common for players to live together, uh, for clubs to kind of um, rent accommodation for them. Obviously, there are more relationships um, as well within squads and within the game in women's football. So if you get one person with a COVID case, as we saw with Bristol City in October, for example, they had one player with symptoms who lived with three other players. So that was four players wiped out straight away. Um, and obviously, you know, I'm reading stuff about like Wolver Wolverhampton Wanderers men's team have stopped their players from going to supermarkets, for example, and they're getting liaison officers to do that for them not an option in the women's game. They have to go to Tesco's themselves um, and put themselves at a bit more risk. Uh, players in the championship as well have, have part-time jobs, as you say. So it, it all has a bit more of a ripple effect. And I, I think that's what we're seeing with Arsenal really at the moment. So something that's kind of dominating the news um, in women's football is that Arsenal have, um, well, they have a positive COVID case, but it has a wider impact than that because a few um, players, only one of which has been named, went to Dubai um, over the Christmas break, despite the fact that London were in tier four and uh, travel, uh, you know, travel was kind of forbidden other than for work. Um, now, the official line from Arsenal is that they're satisfied that these trips were for business reasons, um, meetings with agents, etc. Um, that's the public line. Um, sometimes the public line and the internal line can be a bit different, but um, I don't have any specific insight on that. But yeah, effectively, there's there's a positive case, but a positive case who has, um, you know, has mixed with other players um, and that's causing others to self-isolate. And so Arsenal are effectively struggling to put out a team um, for the game against Aston Villa on Saturday, which by the time you listen to this will probably have been cancelled. Um, the other additional difficulty is I, I see a lot of people understandably saying online, um, why don't Arsenal just call up academy players or Manchester City, whose game's been postponed, why don't they call up their academy players? They actually can't unless the academy players have been specifically training with the first team because academy bubbles are separate from first team bubbles. So to leave the academy training bubble and join the first team, you have to quarantine, I think, for 10 days. Um, so players can't, sorry, teams can't call up academy players at short notice. Um, so really, this is this has kind of um, caused a little bit of chaos at Arsenal. And there's, you know, th there's some additional things in the mix. Lots of Arsenal players don't come from England. They've spent Christmas in England. I'm thinking the Australian players couldn't go home for the Christmas break. I know Leah Volti, for example, is from Switzerland. Um, she stayed in England um, for, for the Christmas break. She hasn't been able to go back to Switzerland for months and months. Um, so, you know, whether there's um, implications on team spirit there with players saying, well, I couldn't even go home and you've gone to Dubai. And not only that, but now our first game back is cancelled, is postponed because of that. I could have just gone home, quite frankly, and come back and quarantine. So, um, you know, I, I'm not saying that is the case at Arsenal. I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised um, if a lot of the players were, were upset with um, with those that, that have gone to Dubai and particularly um, contracted the virus in going there. And I think you mentioned there, Tim, about public messaging. And I think that's part of the reason that Arsenal fans in particular have been quite frustrated because I was at Bourne Wood for the last um, home game against Everton and we asked 
the manager during on tomorrow, um, what would happen over the Christmas break, what they would be telling the players, because obviously we were very aware that the tier four restrictions had just come in. And, you know, he, he answered perfectly in a way, I suppose, and said, look, we'll, we'll be following the government guidelines. And yes, it's, it's going to be disappointing. And we've had that chat with the players. And so obviously, naturally, you assume that everyone would remain in England. That's very much the, the impression that we all got. Um, and from speaking to Arsenal, I understand that that is also what was said privately, um, regardless of any pre-planned business trips that there may have been. They were told, look, we would advise against you going. Um, unfortunately, a small minority of players still chose to travel. Um, Again, as you, uh, as I think you said earlier on, you know, they've provided proof to the club that it was for business reasons, but it's certainly understood that that's a loophole that can be used. You know, there were there were images posted on a beach sipping a cocktail, which I don't think is going to kind of win much favour among the supporters or all those players that have that have kind of been trapped in England, I suppose, not being able to right. see their families. You know, often young players, there's a fair few young players at Arsenal that, you know, maybe it's their first time away from home at Christmas. And I think just that kind of difference in messaging alone is is something that really hasn't come across very well from the club. There hasn't really been an official comment other than in reaction to, to articles that we've written. There, there hasn't been an apology as such many of the players and yes I know they didn't technically do anything wrong but morally it doesn't look great and I think you know just from from my view an apology or at least recognition of the fact that they've gone abroad maybe would have gone a long way to kind of stopping the fans being quite as frustrated as they are because it's a strange sort of scenario when you're you're looking on Twitter and Manchester United fans Manchester City fans, Arsenal fans are all actually reading off the same page and are really frustrated that these players have gone abroad. I, th I think the other um, thing to mention as well, is, and this goes for men's and women's football, footballers are so privileged at the moment. It's one of the few professions probably in the world at the moment that is kind of operating normally. Footballers can train normally. They can play normally. They're with their colleagues all the time. They're exceptionally privileged to be able to do that. And to compromise that by then kind of traveling and things like that, that that's a kick in the teeth for everyone. That's a kick in the teeth for fans. Um, if I can be insular for a moment for, for those of us that cover the game as well, lots of people freelance. It's not particularly lucrative. People, um, you know, if games are cancelled with less than 24 hours notice, freelancers don't get paid. A lot of people kind of cover women's football a little bit out of goodwill. And eroding that goodwill um, by doing things like this, not a good look, really. Yeah, for me, the the, uh, the thing that really grated was this this business excuse that um, that has been tried out because um, a I think it's really poor form of the players to squeeze that that loophole. Um, but then b I think it's appalling really for the for the club to publicly accept it because I, I mean, their business is football. Um, their business is playing week by week and they've actually jeopardised their business by taking this trip to Dubai. We all know what they do week by week. We all know what their business is. We know that 
whatever business alleged business they were doing in Dubai was not necessary it was not in, like critical business at best it was maybe meeting a sponsor or going to some an award ceremony I've heard rumored or um uh, meeting an agent who you know like these are all things that can be done online these are all things that everyone is having to do online we're all having to do all of our interviews with these players online but if I say hang on let's arrange a meeting um it, let's arrange to do an interview in Dubai with a player um and we both fly out there can we then do this meet interview that we've been waiting to do for however long face to face can we do it out there and then we'll get away with it because it was a business uh business trip um instead of doing it on zoom like we have we have been doing you know they're not au fait they're, they're they're not like removed from the fact that they've been having to do a lot of stuff remotely themselves you know we do all of their press conferences post-match pre-match um via zoom you know they know that's the world the way the world works and so for this this excuse of a business trip to be trotted out I think it's particularly galling because everyone is having to make compromises business-wise and this is quite clearly not the a, a core part of their business um you know I think I think we should I think we should say it you know one of the players who went out there and has been very very you know kind of publicly um named is Katie McCabe I do not know if she is one of the players that's contracted COVID and I wouldn't say either way if she if she was but the fact that she made that trip out her excuses she went to see an agent her agent lives down the road from her in Hertfordshire um there was no reason for that trip to go ahead and I think those those excuses need 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 calling out and need uh need pulling apart because it's it's just not good enough that they can get away with that We also know that Arsenal struggled a little bit this season, particularly in the big games, and, and that has turned the spotlight on manager Joe Montemoro and his future. There's been uh, a kind of section of Arsenal fans that have, that have been calling for him to leave the club. Um, again, for those that don't know, Joe is an Arsenal fan, Um and and has has been in in the women's game now is an Australian came over and has won the women's Super League with with Arsenal and also a, a League Cup um, and has I think it's fair to say no doubt improved the team. Um, but Tim, what what do you make of the the Joe Joe in or Joe out uh, and everything else that has kind of been going on on social media? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the first thing to say from the club's perspective is that nothing will happen would happen before the end of the season, um, and I don't I don't get the sense there's any appetite um, to to seriously review his position at the moment. The the thing is for Arsenal, it, it's quite strange because you look at the league table, and you look at the amount of goals Arsenal score. They're all, I think they're on plus twenty five goal difference at the moment. They've won games nine one. They've had a couple of six ones, a six nil, a five nil. They, they don't just beat, beat everyone outside the top four. They thrash them, quite frankly. Um, and, you know, sometimes you come out of a, a big game where Arsenal have struggled and then they'll go, you know, they'll go and play like Birmingham or something and win three or four nil. And you'll think, oh, OK, everything's OK again. The, the problem for Joe and for Arsenal is these big games, specifically away from home. Not such a problem at home. Um, they, beat, they tend to beat Manchester City at Meadow Park, for example, uh, they haven't played Manchester United at Meadow Park for a couple of seasons, um, so we'll see with that one. But away from home, 
when teams really press them hard and press them high up the pitch. And Joe just hasn't really found an answer yet. And the problem there is the way the league is and how compressed, and not just the league, but the other competitions. Arsenal cannot win the league or the FA Cup or the Conti Cup without winning one of those games. That's the problem. Sooner or later, you have to win them um, or at least not lose them. And they're just really struggling to find an answer um, in those kind of big away games when teams really press them high up. Um, they, they did well at, at home to Chelsea um, recently. They found an answer for Chelsea's pressing game. I, I don't quite know why they can't do it away from home, though. And it, it's, it's such a weird issue because it's probably the only thing that's really wrong um, when you watch Arsenal. Everything else is kind of great. But it's such a big problem. It's such a big barrier um, that they, they just can't win anything. And, and I think really that the test this season will be they've still got the FA Cup. They're still the league. I think win the FA Cup and finish in the top three would be like good, acceptable. Finishing the top three would probably be enough um, to preserve Joe Montemurro's job. If they finish fourth and don't win anything, then I think his, his position would and should be under review. Um, and I can understand why people think that that might happen because, you know, these big games are on the horizon and they're so defining. And Susie, I think you, you've written a piece not too long ago discussing the kind of wider situation at Arsenal Women and, and how Joe fits into that. Would you mind talking to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, like I think we've all seen it covering... Arsenal in recent months um, when you speak to Joe before or after games there have been sort of hints um, about Arsenal being left behind the rest and um, I mean to quote him saying you know that Man United's arrival in investment has sort of woken um, the rest up and that we're now having to look at ourselves so we can start to build to be the best and be better um, little things like that, that, you know, we have to stick to the budget we're given, um, that, have, that have hinted that maybe the support isn't quite at the level of the, the clubs around them. And I'm not saying, you know, a few people, when I when I wrote this in the article, said, oh, but Arsenal spend big on transfers. I'm not saying just transfers. We're not talking just transfers here. Obviously, money that goes into a club goes into all different aspects of the club. So, um, basically, uh, I suppose... The, the issue is Arsenal have always been a pioneer in women's football and have invested heavily, but now these clubs have come in and are pushing the bar higher and higher. And Arsenal have, I, I think, been caught a little short in, in being able to match the pace of that investment. Um, so it's not necessarily that they're not willing to invest, but if they've, they've, that their pace of investment isn't quite hitting the heights of those other clubs. And I think that is a problem. Um and going back to Tim's point um, on, on the defeats, I think uh, like just before Christmas, they were very, very unlucky in the City game and the Chelsea game, not to not to come away with a point, you know, two very, very late goals. Um, and, you know, we could be uh, talking about two draws and, a, and a, a very, very different narrative. But once those types of results and those types of um uh, late goals conceded start to rack up to the level that they have um, and it becomes a pattern that doesn't seem to have a, a, a solution to 
that's when it starts to become a, a, a bigger problem. So I think that there's the two issues. There's this sort of battle going on internally about um, budget and how they invest and then also how they unlock um, the, the big teams and something has to give in both of those for the, the team to be able to push on and compete for the, for the title this season for me. That concludes the Arsenal Beat for this week. Do follow us on Twitter at the Arsenal Beat and subscribe to the podcast on your preferred platform. The next episode will be with you from January 12th with a look ahead to the Crystal Palace fixture. Stay safe. Mm-hmm.